Ted Cruz is interesting because he's always, I mean, he's always saying, I'm the only one that can beat Donald Trump. At a news conference in early March, Donald Trump's campaign made news in a way it didn't expect. After the event, a reporter, Michelle Fields, said she had been manhandled by Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager, as she attempted to ask Trump a question. Two days later, Lewandowski tweeted that she was delusional and he had never met her. Security camera footage from the venue would soon prove otherwise. Lewandowski had indeed pulled Fields firmly away from the candidate, and Palm Beach police charged Lewandowski with battery. A media firestorm ensued, and Trump was asked if he would fire his campaign manager. I'm a loyal person. I'm going to be loyal to the country. I'm going to be loyal to Wisconsin. We have to tell it like it is. It would be so easy for me to terminate this man, ruin his life, ruin his family. He's got four beautiful children in New Hampshire, ruin his whole everything, and say you're fired, okay? I fired many people, especially on The Apprentice. By mid-April, the Palm Beach attorney decided not to prosecute the case. So, you know, I am happy that the Palm Beach County District Attorney has decided not to move forward with any charges. I'm happy this is behind us, and I'm happy to move forward with the campaign. But the drama did not end there for Lewandowski. The campaign demoted him and elevated Paul Manafort to campaign chairman, ushering in a period of tense infighting among Trump's aides. And then just this week, Lewandowski was indeed fired. This is Trailhead, a podcast by Real Clear Politics. I'm Rebecca Berg, and in this series, we're exploring the quirky markers on the path to the nominating conventions through some of the standout moments in this year's primary process. The spotlight that was trained on Corey Lewandowski was unusual among campaign aides, most of whom usually remain in the background for the duration of the primary campaign. But these quiet actors are powerful forces, and a candidate's success or failure often hinges on theirs. We hear most about campaign managers or the communications team, but a campaign is comprised of so much more than that. From advanced men who plan out events, to the policy teams helping to craft a candidate's stances, to pollsters measuring support and testing messages, to the body man who travels with a candidate every day, and so many more. Trump's campaign, we should note, didn't really operate this way or have people in these roles. Trump's campaign was mostly Trump. But for everyone else, a reliable, capable campaign team is essential. Hiring a campaign team is not as simple as filling jobs at a normal company. There's an expectation in politics that people who work for a candidate generally align with them. And this was a particular focus for Doug Stafford when he went about building Rand Paul's campaign. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we are we were very particular about is trying to find as many people as you can that surround yourself with that are dedicated to the ideas that Rand believes in. Um, you know, he's obviously has very firm and very clear ideological you know, touch points that he's going to be out there talking about every day. And some of them are some that other Republicans might agree with, some are not. And so you want to kind of look through it from the lens of, of people that want to be there for the, for the same reasons as him. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I try to look at it as building a team. Um, and so it was important that, you know, people whose both skill sets and personalities could be blended together in a way where 
they could work together um, where you had you know very little rivalries and infighting and stories going around and stuff like that and that was important to us and um, yeah being both dedicated to the person that you know, we were helping with his mission, but also, you know, having each other's backs. So infighting and stories going around and personality clashes, is that a trap that campaigns often fall into? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it comes from both places. It, it, it can be a trap that campaigns fall into. Um, the larger they are, the more the people haven't worked together before or didn't know each other before, the more the lanes aren't clearly set ahead of time. The more people think that somebody can jump over somebody, I think sometimes you know their career or their what they see as their career gets the best of them. Um, and then also some of it is you know um, frankly there can be a you know a third level operative who speaks out of school about something they don't really know about that the media takes seriously when they shouldn't. Stafford was Paul's chief of staff in the Senate, and he transitioned to work as his chief strategist on the presidential campaign which was kind of an amorphous role to hear Stafford describe it. You know, I, everyone gives themselves and, and gives each other titles on a campaign, but, um, you know, my role has always been to, to do whatever Rand needs me to do. And so I, have, I end up having a lot of different roles, and I'm not sure. I'm not intimately familiar with how everybody else ran their campaigns, but I, every campaign is different. Um, mine had probably involved a lot more direct interaction with, with the candidate than a lot of people's. Uh, do in, in my situation just because I'm the one there that knows him the best. I was you know, with him from the minute he started running for office and I was just chief of staff in the Senate. And then, you know, so it's, it's um, you know, day by day, hour by hour, um, I'm probably the one just talking to him and getting the information back and forth to him. And if his job in the campaign was a bit fluid, Stafford's daily routine was even more so. Oh, I mean, uh, there's no such thing as an average day on a campaign. It's it's one of the things that's interesting about it is they're they're all different and they all have their own kind of flow and challenges. Depended if, for example, if if uh, the candidate was on the road, it depended if I was on the road or not. And so there was a lot that went into that. Most days typically start though with you know getting up in the morning and going over obviously any news that has come up and what is going to drive the outside forces for the day, what the media is going to want to talk about, what the media is going to want to ask about versus what you had planned to want to talk about <laughs> and see how they do or don't line up and, and what you can suggest might be things to talk about. And um, you know, as, you've, as you know, Rand is very, very available for you know, media and gave lots of interviews and, and um, you know, is on radio, TV, newspaper, et cetera, all day long. And so he had a very intense public uh, schedule and, and had a lot that he would be asked and commenting on during the day. So the first thing we always did was kind of make sure you know, he knew everything that was going on and, and we all kind of huddled together on, on what he was going to be asked that day and things like that. One of the factors that can vary wildly from one campaign to the next is the direct involvement of the candidate. They can often be very hands-off, either by choice or by necessity, because there are constant demands on their time. But Stafford says Paul was not that way. Um, Rand loves campaigns and is a very hands-on person. Um, from the time I met him, when he was running in 2009 or 2010, he was very active in the, you know, the message, the public delivery of that message, um, you know, the, the 
where are we going to go and who are we going to campaign to uh, decisions. Um, he's, he's very hands-on. Nor did Paul really give up his work in the Senate. Typically, elected officials who are campaigning for president will spend a lot of time away from their day jobs. And this was the case this cycle with Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Bernie Sanders, and Lindsey Graham. But Paul continued to keep up a pretty robust schedule on the Hill. What I was doing was working with a candidate who was an incumbent senator. So he, first and foremost, had each day to deal with his job as a senator. And, you know, as you saw during the, the race, he kept doing his job. You know, he kept coming you know, every single week to, to Washington and doing his job here as well as campaigning. So that made it a different challenge to schedule versus somebody who was just out there running. Um, so, you know, he'd come in and usually be here every Monday through at least Thursday in the Senate and then campaign after that. And so it was, it was a, the, the division of labor wasn't so much as the sheer volume of labor um, and the, the amount that he had to do to be able to do both of those things. It wasn't actually all that unusual to him, though, when he ran for Senate in 2009 and 2010, he kept up his full-time solo medical practitioner practice while he was running for office. So in other words, he would go in every single morning at 7 or 8 o'clock to his doctor's office, do surgery, see patients, do all the stuff he normally did until late afternoon, and then he would go start campaigning. And he did that for a year and a half when he was running for Senate. The thing is, a Senate campaign doesn't really prepare you for a presidential campaign. A Senate campaign is manageable. The target area is small. But with a presidential campaign, even in the primary, everything is bigger. Um, you have a lot more um, larger fundraising operation, larger logistical operations. So you have to be in, obviously, multiple states at the same time. We had people on the ground in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada from the beginning. Um, we had, whether they were paid or volunteer, we had them in another you know, dozen states pretty quickly right after that. And so it's a much more sprawling, more time-consuming to manage um, operation than a Senate race is. One staff silo you don't see as often on a Senate campaign as on a presidential one is a policy shop. On a good presidential campaign, your policy shop is going to have a structure and a rhythm that's very similar to a presidential policymaking process. That's Lonnie Chen, who worked as a policy advisor in this campaign for Marco Rubio, and in past cycles for Mitt Romney and President George W. Bush. I sat down with him recently when he was passing through Washington. So, for most campaigns, the policy shop is divided into functional areas. So there'll be a group of people that work on economic policy, people that work on foreign policy and national security issues, and then a group of people that work on domestic policy, broadly understood, which could include everything ranging from education to energy and infrastructure. And within those pods, there are people who specialize in specific issues. So you have a healthcare person, you have an education policy person, you have someone who specializes maybe in agriculture issues. And the idea is to have people who are subject matter experts, but who also understand the political overlay that they're working in. And uh, the goal really is to have a process where 
people are inputting the best policy ideas and there's a process that's very similar to what happens at the White House where you have people who are sort of the frontline advisors making policy recommendations that go to uh, the management of the policy shop and then the management of the policy shop takes sort of the best ideas and puts those in front of the candidate and the candidate has to decide whether those ideas are consistent with his or her philosophy, what they want to do. The policy team on a campaign isn't exactly starting from scratch. Candidates for president tend to be elected officials or former elected officials who at the very least have some sense of what they stand for. Oftentimes, they can be really, really wonky. There's a common caricature of candidates as sort of blank slates who right. need to be told what to do. My experience, at least working uh, now with three presidential candidates, um, George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, and Marco Rubio suggests that they all had very strong instincts about what they wanted to do. Uh, and it's a question really on the advisory team of helping them shape um, some specific ideas around where they want to do, where they want to head and what they want to do. Naturally, you will have some candidates who will care a lot more about policy and want to emphasize it a lot more. So Governor Romney was deeply concerned about policy. So we invested pretty substantially in the infrastructure of a policy team that would be ready to sustain us through the general election and ready, frankly, to transition to governing if it got there. Um, I think you saw the same thing with Jeb Bush's campaign. This, like, I didn't work with Governor Bush, but I did know a number of people in that policy shop, some of whom were on my staff, and it was a really good team. And, and the investment in policy mattered a lot. Um, on that campaign as well. So I, I think you're right that depending on the candidate, you're going to see different levels of investment. Donald Trump doesn't have a policy shop, right? So, or at least not one that I know of. And so I think that demonstrates the contrast in terms of how they think about the role of policy in their campaign. But campaign policy is not purely offensive. Other times you're responding to something that's come up during the day, something that your opponent's attacking you on, something your candidate has said. Maybe sometimes uh, people don't always say things perfectly, and so you're having to uh, clean up, as it were, uh, things that are happening during the day. So, so that's the job of the policy shop? In it can be, yeah. I mean, usually the communication shop takes first lead on any rapid response, but oftentimes a good campaign the communications team and the policy team will be working really closely together to make sure that the substance of what our communicators are saying makes sense. And in some cases, you will want people from your policy shop to communicate the message. What makes this infinitely more difficult is that campaigns work on the tightest deadlines. There aren't months to develop policy or respond to an attack. There are hours. When you're in a campaign, you are responding and you are proposing policy in a much shorter time cycle than you are in an administration. Mm -hmm. When you're in an administration, you might have a few months to put something together, you might have a year to put something together. On a campaign, you might have 24 hours. I think the thing that surprised me most on my first campaign was really the pace because you read about it and you hear about it, but it's not until you work on a presidential that you realize, and, and this is true whether you're in comms or policy or strategy or whatever, that the pace is so remarkably fast. And it's gotten even faster since 2004, because remember in, in 2004 we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook, or, or Facebook was a very young technology at the time. Now everything happens in such quick news cycles that uh, the pace has become only faster. And so I think that, that that's been the biggest observation I've, I've made about campaigns is that, and everyone I've, I've ever hired to work on a campaign too, observes after they're done how surprised they are about the pace and about 
just the back and forth and how aggressive it can be and how many times the story can shift and change in one day. Meanwhile, policy in a primary isn't necessarily easy to communicate because candidates from the same party are competing against each other and most of the time they tend to agree. And in a primary in particular, how difficult is it from a policy perspective to draw these distinctions with oh, people who are very, Exactly. Very I mean, you've, you've hit on the exact problem, which is that primaries are fought on very narrow turf. And if you think about, you know, the 2012 Republican primary, most of those people on the stage believed in pretty much the same stuff. At least you could say that was the case on 90% of issues or 95% of issues. So it makes those 5% of issues you disagree on so much more substantial. And therefore, you have to draw distinctions that are much sharper on policy in a primary election. In a general election, it's obvious, right? You've got one a person who wants to raise taxes, one person who wants to cut taxes. Right. You've got someone who wants to increase spending and someone who wants to decrease it. So those distinctions are much more obvious, but on a primary it can be a lot more challenging and as a result the policy shop oftentimes has to figure out how do you take a very narrow difference between two candidates and, and, and really illustrate what the implications of those differences will be. And, and that's a very complicated and tricky thing because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these guys probably agree on a lot of things. But the Republican primary this time was a bit unusual in this respect. In this year's primary, there, was, there were some serious differences because Trump, particularly on issues like trade and immigration, was in a very different place from someone like Marco Rubio. Um, or Jeb Bush. So, so this year's primary was a little bit different. But I think you, you did see, you know, for example, on national security issues, some of the contrast between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, who I believe dispositionally agree that a strong and engaged America is important. Uh, maybe they disagree in terms of the degree to which they want to see an engaged foreign policy. So someone like Ted Cruz may be a little less willing to see that strong engagement than someone like Marco Rubio. But again, those differences are pretty minute. But as you saw during the debates, those end up becoming pretty substantial differences. And so what you're always trying to do is to find areas of distinction. Tax policy is another one in this year's campaign where the Cruz tax plan and the Rubio tax plan actually were very different because Cruz was proposing moving toward a value-added tax, kind of flat tax system. Rubio was proposing um, fundamental tax reform along the lines of what previous Republican candidates have with the addition of a child tax credit. So, you know, that's an area where the policy differs enough that you're going to try and draw big distinctions. But if you were to ask Marco and Ted, at the end of the day, they'd both tell you, look, we want a, a simpler, fairer, flatter tax system, right? right. And that's, that's really you know, it, they have the same goal in mind, but the policy in a primary, you're trying to draw those distinctions and be different. On rare occasions, policy can also be used as a gambit to steal the spotlight. This can be tough because policy is not the sexiest part of a campaign, but it is also a ripe area for gimmickry. I think the good campaigns will try to keep it substantive. I mean, of course, there's a little bit of gimmickry involved in how you sell policy because it's not always the most interesting or sexiest thing for reporters to cover, right? So you're, you're trying to figure out what the right angle is to capture people's attention. And so, you know, there, there can be some salesmanship in that. but. Um, in terms of actually proposing policy that is that is sort of gimmicky in nature, serious campaigns shouldn't do that. Now, I've seen campaigns do that. Uh, generally, there are campaigns that aren't doing as well uh, in the polls, and they feel like they need to turn it around, and so they figure we're going to go out and say, hey, we're going to put out the world's best tax plan, when in fact, you know, maybe there's not a lot there. 
Remember Herman Cain's 999 tax plan? Good times. But then there was this primary, and Donald Trump didn't talk a lot about policy at all, and he won. I asked Chen if this had been a source of some frustration for him. When you have a campaign as devoid of policy as the one we've had, you're in a very dangerous situation for our democracy because you don't actually know what the person will do when they get there. Now, you know general broad strokes of, you know, for example, Trump wants to build a wall and he wants to have Mexico pay for it. But the, the specification of that policy is a lot more complicated. And without knowing the mechanism of how that's actually going to happen, it's very difficult for voters then to hold him accountable if he gets elected and either does or doesn't do more likely if he doesn't do what he proposes, right? So I see it as frustrating, yes, but actually it's, I think, very problematic for how a democracy is supposed to work, which is that people make informed decisions about the choices they have in front of them. And this cycle, we haven't had an opportunity to have those informed choices. Working on a presidential campaign is in so many ways unlike any other job in the world. It is a high-wire act with incredible stakes, and oftentimes the people in the thick of it have never been there before. Many of them are quite young, most are incredibly passionate, and they're learning as they go. Here's Stafford again. So you're about to, to be on this big kind of chessboard, or you're about to play this massive game, and, and in the case of this year, you went in thinking it was going to be one game or one opponent, and it was a totally different game than anybody had prepared for. And so, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you have to question everything that you're preparing for and every strategic decision you think you had planned out. And, um, you know, so it's, it was basically there's, there's a lot more coming at you during the game than you probably uh, realize until you're in it. But also just, you know, this one in particular, which is, I mean, you basically have to throw out the playbook. There's nobody that was that was basically that was really prepared for this. So. Yeah, um, even even in a normal campaign, is there really anything that can prepare you for that environment going to a presidential campaign for the first time? You know, probably not. It was certainly interesting. It was an experience that I don't think uh, any of us will forget soon. Would you want to do another presidential campaign someday? No, or are no, you over it? Not particularly, no. <laughs> not particularly, no. <laughs> Campaigns are ultimately trying to tell a story, but someone else is writing it. Next week on Trailhead. <laughs>